You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. It is about that time. We take your calls, 11 3702 your SMS is 31702, and your WhatsApp's 0727021702. And uh, Dr. Chris Smith is with us to take all of your science-related questions. Happy Monday, Doctor. How are you doing? Well, I'm in very good shape. How are you? I am wonderful, wonderful. Always excited to be talking to you. Let's jump straight into the questions we have. Is it Gola in Kempton Park? Hi, uh, good afternoon, uh, Lebo and uh, Dr. Chris. Mm. I've got a question on the, on the airspace. How do countries determine that this is their, their airspace, they can lock it? Mm. And uh, other uh, uh, planes or country countries cannot fly over those uh, uh, airspaces. What, wh- how who determines and how do they know this is our area? Okay, thank you. There are international rules governing this, and the same applies with shipping on the oceans. Your country has jurisdiction over the air directly over it, and to to a certain extent beyond it if it's over the ocean same as you have your territorial waters to a certain distance away from the coastline of your country so uh, obviously they're going to be aviators and pilots and various other people listening to this who know a lot more about this than i do but basically these are all defined we know where those borders are and when you cross from one jurisdiction into another you need to hand over as a, as an aviator between one jurisdiction and another so they keep tabs on you you keep tabs on them and then everyone stays safe so basically it's a bit like a map and you look at a map and you can see where one country starts and another country stops so you can see where the border with zimbabwe is from south africa for example you can see those things that's the same in the air and and we know what the coordinates are for where that happens and we know therefore whose jurisdiction you're in and this really matters because if you're in a war situation for example and you stray into someone else's airspace and you're not supposed to be there actually the rules of the game are they can do they can do what they want to you and they they can be very very bad about it and um this is why you hear things for instance um we've we've heard stories about the Chinese flying into other people's airspace or close to other people's airspace or, or vice versa. People are regarding this as a provocation. So we know where those margins and boundaries are and people are uh, required by law to identify themselves and then follow various procedures that are well documented and followed by people all over the world, all countries internationally, to make sure everyone stays safe. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Gola, for that question. Gola and Kempton Park, we've got a voice note. <coughs> Good afternoon, Rulebukhile and team. I have a question for the doctor. And my question is, could you, can you hiccup while you're sleeping? Because I've been having hiccups for a couple of days, maybe like three days, and it's just going on and on and on. So I wonder if, uh, does, can it also happen while you're sleeping? Lesoho from Vetpochi. If you could answer that, please, I would be delighted. Thanks. Thank you so much for that question. And maybe you need to get that checked out, having hiccups for a few days. Doctor? Mm-hmm. I think the longest bout of hiccups on record went on for about 70 years. So I don't think you're quite there with a few days yet. But you're quite right. If something's changed and it's going on and on indefinitely, then perhaps you need to get that looked into. The fancy medical word for hiccups is actually singultus. 
and it's a diaphragmatic spasm. Your diaphragm is the big dome of muscle that separates what's in your tummy from what's in your chest, and you use it to breathe in. So when you want to take a breath in, you contract your diaphragm, which pulls the dome of muscle downwards. This lowers the pressure inside your chest lower than the air outside you, so air pushes its way into you and inflates your lungs. And the supply to that muscle, the diaphragm, comes from something called your phrenic nerve. And the phrenic nerve comes out of the top end of your spinal cord, but it's controlled by motor nerves which originate in your brainstem. And there are various circuits there which are concerned with coordinating breathing because at the end of the day, a hiccup is breathing that's gone wrong. And we don't know exactly why, but certain circumstances can trigger bouts of hiccuping. And they're usually excitement or unease, concern, anxiety, but usually when you're excited about things. And often if you get stressed about the hiccups, they get worse because any kind of neurological or psychological manifestation is intensified by stress. And if it makes you stressed having the thing, then you focus on it and you tend to make it worse. And we we think that one of the reasons why when you are excited that this happens is because the hiccuping system in the respiratory nuclei in your brainstem is quite close to other structures called reticular formations and the reticular formations are concerned with activating your attention arousal being awake doing things being galvanized and, and excited about things so it might be that there's a bit of spillover of nerve activity from those centers onto the adjacent respiratory system which is why you get these diaphragmatic spasms whether or not this happens at night time and when you go to sleep i don't know is the answer to that uh, i've no idea i've not sure if anyone listening to this knows the answer to that i've never been asked that question i never thought about it so i would guesstimate that if your hiccups are a reaction to excitement because when you go to sleep you're not going to be excited they won't happen but when you are having hiccups for pathological reasons which can happen with certain neurological conditions and certain drugs and so on it would i would expect that because that's irrespective of your attentional state they would carry on so i think it will be a down to what the cause of the hiccups is whether or not they happen when you're asleep or not animals get them too and it's quite funny when you see the i, I was watching my dog the other day with a bout of hiccups and uh, <laughs> he just didn't know what to make of it shame <laughs> poor animal here's another voice note um, a quick question to the doctor please can you ask him if um doing weights or the weight lifting can that can that cause um a person to become aggressive I mean, I'm taking weight, I'm doing weights and I'm not obviously taking any supplements. I'm just doing it naturally. But can, can, this, can that cause somebody to be sort of um, aggressive towards, towards other people and sort of, yeah, be hostile and, 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 and become aggressive? Thank you. Bye. Interesting question there, doctor. Yeah, where I was thinking he would go with that was, and he mentioned taking supplements and things, people who often are... A aiming to gain a lot of a lot of muscle strength and stature very quickly will resort to chemical help and they'll often use anabolic steroids anabolic steroids are testosterone like mm. chemicals what makes men more aggressive than women on average it's testosterone same with animals it's the male hormone apart from making your muscles big making your stature bigger and putting your blood pressure up testosterone also does drive aggression and therefore people who tend to take 
exogenous testosterone, so supplements with testosterone, do often have mood disorders and they can include swings in mood and aggression. It's unlikely though that just taking routine standard exercise to build up and get healthy, get fit down the gym, that that is going to cause aggression. If you're not an aggressive person, doing exercise is actually going to help you to let off steam. It's going to be healthy for you and leave you feeling more relaxed with the rush of endorphins, which are the body's feel-good chemicals, after you've done the exercise. So I would say no. It's uh, unlikely that just doing exercise, which includes bodybuilding and weight training, is going to make you become more aggressive in terms of your behavior. But if you abuse anabolic steroids, which can have all kinds of negative effects, and people really shouldn't do this because they're probably doing themselves harm, if you, if you do that, then there's every reason that your mood could change. All right, we've got a message from Beggy in Val, who says, does switching a geezer off overnight save electricity and maybe doctor we can extend it to people that do the timed um uh, the timed on off switch on their geezer if it actually does save electricity because there is that argument that um it actually uh, uh, costs more because it has to keep reheating as opposed to maintaining and if that applies in winter right when you heat water you're taking energy which is being supplied by electricity and you're putting it into the water which raises the temperature of the water something that's hot is losing heat far faster than something that's cold and so hot water sitting in your tank despite very very good insulation will still nevertheless be losing heat to the environment so therefore you're going to have to continuously supply heat to keep the water at that high temperature so one argument is, if you only occasionally use hot water, or you use hot water in a very predictable way, so you have a morning shower, but then you're out the rest of the day, and you won't be having another shower until the next morning, then why keep the water hot all day when you don't need it to? Because you're going to be losing heat to the environment, which you're paying for, so it makes sense under those circumstances to heat the water when you need it, and not leave it staying hot for much longer. If, on the other hand, you use water continuously throughout the day ad hoc, you do the washes, do, do the washing up, do the dishes, have a bath, put the kids in the tub or, or so on, that kind of use does require a constant source of hot water. And under those circumstances, it's probably, for the sake of practicality, remembering to turn it on and off and the amount you're saving, really not going to make a, a lot of difference if you were to turn it off and then turn it back on when you needed to heat the water up. So really it comes down to what your usage pattern is and how well insulated your boiler is. If you're worried about this, make sure that your insulation around your water tank, your geezer, is very, very good because then you minimise the losses and then you're not having to continuously spend money to top the temperature up. It's not actually true that if you have to heat the water once to a high temperature, you're using more energy than if you keep it there. That's a fallacy. You're using more energy if you keep it there because it's losing energy all the time just mm. by natural leakage of thermal, of thermal uh, energy because it's already at a high temperature and hot things lose energy faster than cold things. Um, we've got another voice note. Hi, Rele Boile and Dr. Chris in front of the mic uh, and Kabazela behind the mic is Tabu here from Pretoria. Doctor, I just want to find out how deep is the ocean, the deepest part in terms of kilometers? How deep is it? Thank you very much. Thank you so much for that question, Doctor. Oh, it goes down a very long way. It goes down more than 10 kilometers. Oh, wow. The Mariana Trench in the Pacific, very, very deep indeed. Uh, yeah, a long, long way down. You could, you could sink Mount Everest in there 
and the top would still be underwater. That's how deep it is. <laughs> it's a very long way down. So the deepest ocean is deeper than the tallest mountain is tall. And uh, that that's, I mean, mind-boggling in and of itself, but we know more about the surface of Mars, really, than we do about the underfloor of or the, un, or the seafloor of our oceans around the planet. I mean, there, there are things down there just extraordinary. One very sobering point was made to me, though, which is a marine biologist went down to the bottom of an ocean in one of these submarines and saw, when he got there, apart from discovering new species no one had ever seen before, a plastic raincoat and said it's just awful in some respects you can go to the most remote the most hostile the most hard to access place on earth and you will still discover mankind's footprint there in the form of plastic pollution and that's a wake-up call to everyone i think isn't it definitely is um let's check out and of course um if you do have a question for the doctor oh double one double eight three oh seven oh two and oh seven two seven oh two one seven oh two um here's a question and it is uh, the person saying they've been diagnosed with an overactive bladder about five years ago. They're on treatment called Betmega. Then they're asking, what is it exactly that causes this condition and can it be cured? That uh, uh, This is from Grace who says she was informed that there is a cream that can be applied into the bladder for a period of six I don't know, six what, for once a week. This medication is currently not approved in South Africa. Do you know anything about it? There's a number of things that can go wrong with our urinary system as we get older. In men, you tend to get an enlargement naturally of the prostate gland, which is a bulb-shaped blob of tissue which sits around the outflow from the bladder. And just by chance, naturally, as we, as we get older and under the influence of hormones, this undergoes enlargement and it, it grows because the number of cells get bigger. And this is called benign prostatic hyperplasia. And because the prostate gland is around the opening of the bladder, as it gets bigger, it can squeeze in on the outflow and make it harder to go. And this means that people can end up with quite a big bladder, which is very muscular, and, and it's excitable. And they end up with a bladder that doesn't completely empty. And as a result of that, it can sometimes have what's called overflowing continence, where you add a little bit more urine, it stretches the bladder, and the bladder, because it's already electrically more excitable, then just goes for it for a bit and you, you spill a bit. In women, the opposite problem, not of I can't go, I'm stuck, can't, can't get the urine to get started, which is what tends to happen with prostate enlargement. In women, as you get older, things get a bit saggier. And this means that it's harder to hold on to urine. And you can find that the muscles which are around the neck of the bladder, your sphincter, can become less good at holding on to urine. And this is because the pelvic floor, which is the sort of curtain of muscles that holds everything together at the bottom of your abdomen, this tends to become a bit looser with age. And also, if you've had children, everything gets a bit stretched. And a lot of the ability to hang on to urine is down to the, the tone of those muscles. So if they're a bit saggier and add age on top of that, it can be more likely that things get leakier. And as a result of that, you can end up with um, sudden leakages, which are because of, say, the, the bladder just having a natural spike in activity, which can happen. There are ways of controlling these things. In men, you can open the, the, the outflow up a bit by removing bits of the 
prostate gland. Um, there are other ways to, to help uh, slow down the rate at which the prostate gets larger. In women, you can give drugs which will help to increase the tone of the sphincter, and that can help to stop leakages, for example. There are also operative interventions. I'm not familiar with what the one is that was being mentioned just there. I don't know what that is. Mm. Uh, I would certainly, if you're going to go for any kind of treatment, A, make sure it has a, a, a medical approval, so it's been certified as safe, that it's actually approved by the regulatory authorities as a safe intervention that has a track record that's been properly researched and and obviously um, make sure that, it, that it's uh, it's got a, a long track record around the world because then you can be reassured that people have done proper trials on this in multiple countries multiple contexts and you know that what they're telling you can be supported by proper scientific and clinical evidence it's not just someone saying oh this will work try this don't ever do that all right Paul in Morningside hi Paul Hello. Yes. Hi. My question is, is the origin of language. And if we all stem from the same place, how did language develop into so many different dialects? There are thousands, and yet we all came from the same place. Mm. Yeah. Hi, Paul. Yes, that makes well, sense, well, I, Paul. I do, Thank I you. I get this completely. Uh, I mean, there's a couple of things to think about. One is that while people did all come from the same place, they didn't all stay in the same place. And in the same way that we get accents because you isolate people, and they were isolated because in the good old days, there were no boats, buses, cars, planes and trains. We were kept apart by the constraints of geography. And that meant that communities tended to exist together in fairly isolated groups. And that meant that people tended to speak a certain way. And the, the best manifestation of that today's accents, if you compare the way that people in southern Africa speak compared with, say, the UK, a lot of those countries were, were peopled by migration. And people would have left the UK speaking the way that your average Englander speaks, but pretty quickly they'll embrace culture in southern Africa and distill certain speech patterns which become that accent. Same in New Zealand, same in Australia, same in America. And so if you take the extension of that, which is, well, you can change the way people speak if you give them a geographical isolation. Well, if you take it a stage further and say, now, now put a lot of time there, leave those people to their own devices, leave them to the fact that the environment they're dealing with, they may not have had words from where they came from to describe some of the animals, some of the plants, some of the diseases, some of the experiences, some of the weather patterns. So they all have invented them. And over time, you end up with this combination of all these different factors and isolation taking language which, yes, we all have the same brain pathways and systems that make language and decode language, which is why we can all learn each other's languages, but you learn that as a baby from your environment and group you're in. And so that isolation, when we were far fewer in number across the earth, far more distributed and spaced out from each other, that would have distilled out those languages and dialects in the very early years of human evolution. Dr. Christmas, always interesting hearing some of these questions from the listeners, but also the answers. Thank you so much. That is The Naked Scientist.